Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Listen, you are the most privileged generation ever because you don't just have access in books, you have it on your phone, you have it on your computer, you have it on your tablet, you can take a walk and, and, and put it on Bluetooth and listen to the Word of God read to you. If you're not a good reader, get a good Bible app and let and then, then use that, have the Word read to you daily. We now move on to chapter 12 in the Gospel of Mark. Pastor Sam gives us a two-part lesson he has entitled, The Wise and the Wicked. We will be looking at this entire chapter over the next two broadcasts, and today we begin with the parable of the wicked vine dressers. So let's get started. Mark 12, The Wise and the Wicked. For those of you in need of comfort, I know there are many I would highly recommend some time in the Psalms. Because those Psalms, so many of them written by David during times he suffered, during times he struggled when he was on the run, when horrible things had happened to those he loved, he wrote those songs. They were Israel's hymnal. They're a part of our hymnal today. If you're in need of wisdom, and by the way, is anybody not in need of wisdom the book of Proverbs is excellent. And throughout it, there will be a contrast. The wise and the fool. The wise man and the foolish. The wise and the fool. Today, we're looking at the wise and the wicked. Why? Because Jesus is going to have three encounters. He'll share a short parable. It will apply to some of those who are trying him and testing him and trying to ensnare and trap him. And then he'll have, uh, you know, a couple of those encounters. Then he'll have an encounter with somebody not so wicked, but very wise. And then, well, there'll be some insight late in the study in the latter portions of the chapter. But for our purposes today, I just want to say that, that these who were attacking Jesus, these who were trying to ensnare and trip Jesus up, they were fools because they were ignorant, but they were wicked because they were arrogant. And it's a horrible combination. Well, he begins to speak to them in verse 1, chapter 12, in parables. And he tells a short story of a man who plants a vineyard, sets a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, builds a tower, leasing it out to those who would care for it. He goes into a far country. Now, this is something they would have all been familiar with. It happened regularly. They'd been a part of it. They'd done it, some of them. They'd participated or watched it happen. So, so for them, this is an everyday kind of, yeah, there's a vineyard and there's the, you know, this is the whole setup was pretty common. At vintage time, that's when the grapes were ripe. It says he sent servants to them that he might receive some of the fruit from them. But when they came, they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4 says he sent another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. Verse 5, and again he sent another, and they killed him. They killed many others, beating some and killing some. The parable itself is both historical 
and prophetic. It's historical because this is what had taken place in the past. God births a nation. He blesses it exceedingly. He gives them a temple and a priesthood, his law, his word. And in the midst of all he did for them, well, they still turned away to idols. He would send his prophets to draw them back. Thus says the Lord. Again and again they would say, but the people hardened their hearts against him. And they began to mistreat the prophets. And if you've studied through the Old Testament, you know Jeremiah, Isaiah, many of them suffered greatly for their faithfulness to tell God's people what God sent them to say. As Paul later says, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, in the midst of all this, that's historical. Those things had happened. Those things were happening. And then he goes to what would soon be happening as he looks to the future. But listen to Isaiah 5, 7. The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. The men of Judah, his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. Israel was chosen to represent the Lord to a world who was ignorant of him, oblivious to him. And they did for a season and then they began to fail miserably. We have been chosen with that same mission and for that same mission. Well, verse six brings them into the present. He's talked about their past. Now he says, and here's what's happening right now. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to the last, sent him to them last, saying, they'll respect my son. But they, vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Now I said it's happening because within days of this, Jesus will be handed over, brutally beaten, scourged, mocked, the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and feet. He will be crucified for the sins of mankind. So, so this picture, it's not just, well, you know, here's a story or here's an idea or a concept. This is literally what Jesus was about to endure. Then he asked the question of verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. The destruction takes place in 70 AD as Titus comes into the city, having sieged it for a season. They destroy the walls. They destroy the temple. They destroy the city. They massacre multitudes, taking others captive back to Rome with them. In the midst of all of these things, Jesus had planted another vineyard. He had planted his church. Out of Israel, he had birthed his church. And Paul will make the, the, the case that, that, you know, God cut them off for their unfaithfulness and he grafted us in so we could bear fruit from, for him. He didn't graft us into Israel. He grafted us into his son, Jesus. He's the vine, we're the branches. Israel can only bear fruit if they're attached to God. Likewise, we can only bear fruit if we're attached to our Lord, our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
Well, we'll come back to all that. But there's, there's a process in this whole thing. And if you go through the book of Romans, highly recommended when you get to chapter 11, just a couple phrases from it. He says, if their fall is riches for the world, speaking of Israel, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? What's he saying? Their fall, their failure. Everyone agrees that has to be talking about Israel. When it comes to the fullness, some want to say, well, that's no longer Israel. Now he's talking about the church. That can't be at all. Romans 9, 10, and 11 contrast Israel and the church, them and us. Their fall, their failure, their fullness, but their fullness will be riches uh, for those others. If they're being cast away, Paul later says in that same chapter, is the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Well, there's more to all that, but for our purposes today, we need to press on. I do want to say Jesus in Revelation identifies himself as he who is holy and he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. He closed the door for a season on Israel. He opened the door for us. This is our season. This is the age of grace. This is the age of opportunity. And so all around us, people who are considering, well, the, the, the reality that, that physical things have no real security because they can go in a moment. It's too stark of a contrast. And, but spiritual things last forever. People created in the image of God and for the glory of God live forever. And the only question is where? With him or separated from him. He shut their door. He's opened us, ours. He warns us not to be haughty because, because their failure is, is an example to us that, that we need to be found faithful and fruitful. Well, he asked them in verse 10, in light of all these things, have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. It's interesting. These guys, they come to ensnare and trap Jesus. He says, let me tell you a little story about the vineyard. And it says they knew he was talking about them. Nevertheless, they continue to harden their heart. They continue to refuse to repent. They continue to plot and plan his destruction. When he says, have you not read in the scripture? It's a challenge to those who had the word and they read the word. But for some reason, the word was not having its way in them and with them. Well, some of the, the Pharisees and Herodians then were sent to catch him in his words, to set a trap for him, a snare for him, to test him or try him. And that's exactly what verse 13 says. Psalm 714 says this, the wicked conceive evil. They are pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. They dig a deep pit to trap others, then fall into it themselves. 
It's a powerful psalm. I said the psalms bring comfort. I guess there's some comfort in knowing God's going to deal with the wicked. But listen to that again. The wicked conceive evil, pregnant with trouble. They give birth to lies. They dig a deep pit to trap others. They fall into it themselves. By the way, Psalm 26, 27 and Ecclesiastes 10, 8, they, they say the same exact thing, but they add that, that the one who rolls a stone, it'll roll back on him. Here's a tip. If you're rolling a stone, don't roll it uphill. But uh, if you break into a house, it says the serpent is going to get you. I think the serpent already has you if you're breaking in. But nevertheless, he says it can bite you. Well, verse 14, they'd come to him. These Pharisees and Herodians, Pharisees, the most conservative of the religious groups in Israel, the Herodians, the most liberal. You wouldn't even consider them a religious party. They were more of a political party, more followers of Caesar and followers of Herod and such. So they gather these ordinarily wouldn't be getting along, but they both see Jesus as a threat to their power, to their position, to, to their future. They see the people are going to Jesus, flocking to Jesus, the common people hearing him gladly. So they come. They say, let's trap him in his words. So when they come, they say to him in verse 14, teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. That second phrase sounds weird. We know that you're true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's truth personified. But care about no people, he, he, what it really means is he, he, didn't, he didn't care for one person over another. He cared for all people. He wasn't, he wasn't bigoted or prejudiced or in any way, well, these are my people and these are not my people. He came to save all mankind. That won't happen, of course, because not all mankind will repent. But that was his mission and it remains his mission. He, they, they say, and this kind of clarifies it, you're true, you care about no one for you do not regard the person of men. They're, they're just acknowledging, we know you're treating everyone equally, but you teach the way of God and truth. This is all true, by the way. So you think these guys are doing pretty good. They know what's true. They're acknowledging it's true. But the problem is, is their motivation here is to set a trap for him. This is vain flattery. And uh, flattery is almost always vain. Someone comes up and is flattering you and they're like, oh, you're the greatest. You're the you're the best at this. Or you're the best at that. You might want to ask yourself, why are they saying that to me? Because, you know, it's not true. Now, in Jesus case, it's all true. So they ask two questions. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And shall we pay or shall we not pay? Of course, it was lawful to pay taxes. It was commanded that they pay their taxes just as it is for us. So they're asking a question they already know the answer to. Their real issue is, shall we pay or not pay? Because if he says, well, don't pay, well, that's going to cause him to be seen in a different light by Herod and by others. Herod having already taken John the Baptist's head simply for telling him it wasn't lawful to have his, his brother's wife. And, and, and now we, we see Jesus confronted by, by these guys who are trying to pit him against Herod. And, and so what does he say? 
He, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing this was an act, knowing they were flattering him only to gain advantage, which didn't work, he says, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. They brought it, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus answered and said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Listen, we got to pay our taxes. We need to be good citizens. All those things are a given. But the more important statement here is to render unto God the things that are God's. Why? We were created in his image for his glory. We are the light of the world, not because we're so bright, but because he lives within us and radiates his light and love through us. We're the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So all of that brings us to this, this simple reality. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It's reasonable and rational, Paul tells us in Romans 12, in light of all God has done for us. We're to shine for him. We're to live for him. We're to use the gifts he's given to glorify him and bless the people around us. And so we press on. Sadducees show up next. Unlike the Pharisees who, well, they received the whole Old Testament, 39 books they believed everyone was inspired by God, had a message for them from the God who inspired it. The Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Old Testament. They're into Moses, if you will. They're kind of a smorgy kind of a, a religious group because they're, they're like, well, you know, we like Moses, maybe a few of the Psalms. There's a couple Proverbs, but, you know, all this other stuff, we're not into that. And there are so many people, sadly, today like that in the churches. And, and it's like we, we don't get to pick and choose what we like from Scripture or what we, we don't sit in judgment on the Scripture. It sits in judgment on us. So the Sadducees, listen, who say there's no resurrection, they came to him. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were yeah, sad, you see. Of course, I know you knew. I knew you knew. Yes, that's right. That's how to say that. Teacher, they say, Moses wrote to us, if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. It's the law of the kinsman redeemer. We see it lived out in the book of Ruth in a beautiful love story. But anyway, they go on to present the problem. Now, it's most likely this is a hypothetical situation that they sat and strategized over and, and they're like, okay, here's a trap he'll never get out of. He won't be able to deal with. Remember, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they say, well, there are these seven brothers and the first brother takes a wife. He dies, but leaves no offspring. The law says the second brother has to take her. So he does. He dies, leaving no offspring. Then the third then the fourth, it gets all the way down to the seventh brother. Now listen, here's why I believe this to be hypothetical. First of all, 
If I'm the third brother, I don't have to be fifth or sixth. If I'm third and two of my brothers have died living with that woman, I am never eating her cookie. I got the dog eating it and he dies. I'm like, there you go. Whatever it was, we don't know. But nobody's foolish enough to, to just let seven go down. There was an old musical called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. This is seven brothers for one bride. And it just makes no sense. By the way, in those days, you would have been far more concerned about who your brother was marrying than you might today. As if your brother marries somebody, you wouldn't particularly be, you know, looking to spend the rest of your life with. So that's their problem. But in that day, this really did happen. I just don't think it happened to seven brothers. So last of all, it says, oh, the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, which they don't believe is going to happen, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. They think this is a conflict that is so great, even Jesus won't be able to figure out a solution to it. I imagine and can't help but see a smirk on their faces as they look at each other in the resurrection. I see Vicente from Princess Bride, you know, the smartest guy in, the, in, in his mind. But, uh, you know, anyway, in the resurrection, when they rise... This complicated hypothetical situation was witty, but it wasn't wise because it was birthed in wickedness and presented in deception. So Jesus answers verse 24 and said, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Later at the conclusion of this little section, he'll say you are greatly mistaken, but mistaken's enough for right here. You are therefore mistaken. This is why so many people in our community, in our state, in our country, around the world, who call themselves Christians have all sorts of ideas and opinions that are absolutely unbiblical. Why? They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the power of God. And, and if you're ignorant of the scripture because you're new, to Christianity, you're a new believer or not yet a believer. Listen, every child is born ignorant and naive. They don't know anything and that's okay. And same thing is true spiritually. You might know a whole lot because you're a grown-up person. But when it comes to the things of God, maybe you don't know anything. Maybe you grew up going to church, but it was a very formal church where they didn't read much of the Bible. Every Christian should be familiar with the scriptures. Every Christian should have read from Genesis to Revelation only to read from Genesis to Revelation again and again and again. Why? Because the word's always the same and we're ever changing. When I read those books I'm so familiar with now, I'm like amazed at some of what I see because things jump out at me and speak to me and challenge me that I never saw in my earlier years walking with the Lord. So all that to say, if you don't know the word, listen, you are the most privileged generation ever because you don't just have access in books, 
you have it on your phone, you have it on your computer, you have it on your tablet, you can take a walk and, and, and put it on Bluetooth and listen to the Word of God read to you. If you're not a good reader, get a good Bible app and, let, and then, then use that, have the Word read to you daily. Why does God command us to do things? Well, because we need to do them. He knows it and we need to listen to Him. But it's not just about being obedient. There are always significant benefits for us in doing so. What does God say about reading his word? Well, Joshua 1.8 tells us, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And what is promised to the one who does this? Psalm 1 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This is what God wants to do in your life. Pick up your Bible, folks. It's so important. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.